0: Hi, it's Joanna Oakey here and welcome back to The Deal Room Podcast, brought to you by the commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we're changing gears a little and we're going to head back to speaking about the legal issues relating to the sales and acquisitions area. So I've brought in again our resident expert from Aspect Legal, Elizabeth Lee. To talk to us about this topical area of misrepresentation in business sale transactions. So hi Liz, welcome back to the show. Hi Joanna.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be back.
0: (laughs) Great. All right. Well, look, let's head into this. Why are we talking about misrepresentation allegations? I guess this is an area that we've identified as something that our listeners, whether they're buying businesses, selling businesses, or our advisors in the process should be aware of. So, Maybe
1: let's talk about what the risks are and why we're talking about this area. Uh, Yes. Well, often when parties engage in buying and selling a business, in the beginning, their relationship is always the sweetest. You know, the parties are best friends. They talk about everything in a positive light. They just can't see anything going wrong. You know, understandably, the buyer is really excited. And the tendency of an excited buyer is to not look at things critically. And this is where they start to, you know, get into quite dangerous territory because they believe everything that they are told. Rightly or wrongly, the vendor may not be deliberately misrepresent because they truly believe the information that they've passed on. But without it being tested and verified independently, buyers stand to lose more than they gain in, in this type of scenario.
0: Yeah, look, I think that's a really good point. We'll we'll talk about some cases in a moment, but I think it's interesting that obviously we're talking about it here in the sense of the risk to a buyer in there being misrepresentation from the seller of a business, but also there's risks for sellers in understanding that what they're saying might actually form an action of misrepresentation against them in the future as well. These warnings that we're talking about today, I think, look, are as relevant for buyers as they are for sellers in relation to the sorts of risks that are around and arguments that might be raised against each of the individuals in relation to misrepresentation in their own particular circumstances.
1: Yes, correct you know, the the result of a misrepresentation could be loss of investment money by the buyer who's purchased the business. There's also the possibility from the seller's perspective that the buyer may want to avoid the transaction due to the misrepresentation and and demand for the money back. So I think it's very important that the parties uh, engage in a way that make it clear that, you know, that, that there's no... A misunderstanding as to ex- what they're buying in terms of the business.
0: Mm, absolutely, and certainly, there's issues that arise where there's been misrepresentation or allegations. And I think, look, let's talk about instances where this issue of misrepresentation has been picked up before completion or settlement. And let's also talk about on the flip side where it's not been picked up until after completion and potentially losses have flowed to the new owner from the misrepresentation. So in that situation, you might have the situation of either trying to reverse the deal after it's all been done or look at the concept of damages after the event. So let's start off by talking about where misrepresentation can occur. So what are the main areas in looking back at the cases in the past and indeed I guess our experience at the coalface here of where representations occur and are most dangerous in a transaction?
1: What what are we seeing? Well, where it occurs that we've seen most commonly in reporter cases is the presentation of financial information. It's very important to make sure you involve the right advisors to help you understand the financial information that you've been given, you know, the profit and loss statements, trading figures, you know, cash flow reports, that sort of thing. You you need to be able to verify and check them against, say, the company's bank statements and so forth and, you know, verify them against, I don't know, the the, the wages that are being paid to, to staff and so forth, right? there needs to be a way to check those figures. And the expert advisors usually know how to do this. Mm. And I guess this is always the process
0: of weighing up though, because quite often in a transaction, of course, it depends on the size of the transaction as to how much time, effort and money you want to put into this process. And sometimes buyers might be in a situation where they don't want to spend a heap of money on financial checking, for example, and we call that you know the due diligence process basically they don't want to spend a lot of money on due diligence because they feel there's a level of trust they often sometimes feel that they have enough of a handle on the business themselves and they don't need detailed due diligence to confirm what they believe they already know and I guess that's where the issues can sometime come into play
1: yeah, that's right. Majority of the cases that we see reported often, you know, you're dealing with a situation where the financial performance isn't as expected. Of course, understandably, that that's where you will sue the seller because you've paid a lot of money for the business and it's not delivering you the financial returns that you thought you were going to get based on the figures that have been presented to you as a buyer. Mm. All right. Well, let's perhaps
0: look at some cases. Let's talk about examples here so we can give a lot of flavour to what we actually mean here about the issues that can occur in this area of misrepresentation. So, Mm. Liz, what, what sort of examples should we share
1: today? For for example, there was a case where the vendor had included revenue from the sale of an asset. It wasn't actually part of its trading figures, but that was somehow represented in the profit and loss statement, which, of course, the buyer relied upon as a uh, financial performance of of the business. But as it turned out, when the buyer did not achieve that sort of financial performance um, after it took over the business it started to question the correctness of the profit and loss statement and, and found out late, much later down the track that, that the profit and loss statement had been inflated artificially from the sale of the asset. Mm, okay, all right. So here we have an issue effectively of a
0: seller including in their financials a one-off asset sale that had artificially inflated the figures of their revenue for a particular period of time that they provided the financials. And I guess, of course, the suggestion here is that they hadn't really been truthful in relation to declaring that this was a one-off transaction and not part of the usual repeatable part of the day-to-day trading of the business. Um, And what kind of business was this, Liz? Uh, It was a printing business. Okay. All right. Yeah. Printing
1: business. All right. That's interesting. And so what did the court say about this case? Yeah, the court actually found that the amounts alleged to have been included in the profit and loss statement were falsified. That They actually found that the vendor falsified the figures in the profit and loss statement. So, you know, there, there was some deliberate action there in inflating the, the financial performance.
0: Mm. So I guess here's an interesting lesson then for sellers who might not be thinking about what they need to disclose and how to properly disclose in relation to items that are one off asset sales that might be giving a misleading view of the inherent financial status of the business itself. And I guess, look, sellers have to be aware of this as an issue, you know, and buyers also have to be careful that they're asking the right questions in the right way so that if a seller has done a bit of a tricky and included these sort of one-off items that this is – Picked up in the due diligence process, or at least that the right questions are being asked throughout the due diligence process, so that if an issue is picked up in the future, then there's enough to go back on to claim this element of misleading and deceptive conduct or misrepresentation.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay, so what else have we got? What other interesting cases have you seen around recently that you think reflect some of the issues that we're seeing at the moment?
1: So, in the sale of a pharmacy, there was incorrect trading stock maximum figures disclosed in the contract. So normally, you know, sort of a regular printed form, sale sale and purchase of business contract, a vendor would specify maximum stock figures, trading stock figures, so that if there was more stock than that amount, the purchaser didn't have to purchase the excess stock. So, you know, they don't end up with too much stock. So when this happened because they, the pharmacy actually had more stock on hand that they had disclosed. The court reversed the transaction uh, on on the grounds that uh, that there was an incorrect amount of stock figure disclosed. Mm. Because obviously the buyer didn't want to buy that
0: sort of level of stock. With you know and, and in a pharmacy, obviously I'm guessing you know this stock has um, expiry dates and I guess there's all sorts of
1: liability. <laughs> connected yes, that's right to old stock. Mm. So because the court ordered the reversal of the transaction, it meant that the parties had to go back to resettle the ma- the, the transaction. and due to the delay, the vendor had actually run the business down and the goodwill of the business had depleted by that point in time. And so, by the time the buyer took over the business again, you know, um, after getting the court to order a reversal of the original transaction, the, the, the value in the business had been destroyed by that time. So, wow,
0: okay. that, there
1: was a real practical. Problem there?
0: Yeah. Look, I, I guess it's interesting. It's interesting from a number of perspectives. First, it's interesting in relation to the way you deal with issues once they arise as well. So it sounds like in this case, you you know we had the in, initial issue of incorrect trading stock amounts, but it probably looks like on the face of it, given the business was effectively. You know, completely run into the ground during the period of this argument. Maybe there may have been better ways to deal with these issues than, you know, than perhaps litigating in the beginning. So anyway, it's, it's yes, that's right. Interesting, isn't it? But I, I guess on the flip side, it's also interesting because we've talked about, you know, a printing business and a pharmacy business, and both of these are generally speaking you know, not necessarily massive businesses. They generally fit into the smaller side of the SME. And I think it's interesting because quite often I see this sort of belief out in the market that where there's a low value purchase price, then there should be less need for due diligence because obviously less money is being spent. But, you know, where this is, there is less of a focus on being really involved with a proper legal process, I think this just shows you that no matter what the size of the business that's being sold, being really tight in your contract and tight in your due diligence process is absolutely imperative. Otherwise, you can be throwing loads of money away, even if, if the business sale that you've been looking at is only a low-value purchase. So I guess this is a take-home message here, isn't it? That organizations that feel they don't need a lot of assistance because the amount they're dealing with is smaller often are creating more expense for themselves by not investing up front in the right advice.
1: Yes, that's right. That's certainly the case. I mean, the value of the business should not be necessarily an indicative element as to how much due diligence you do because, you, you know, you, you might not pay a lot of money for a business, but your financial exposure could be huge if you didn't undertake the the right sort of due diligence and you simply relied on representations made by the vendor who, you know, let's face it, will say anything to sell the business because that's what their motivation is.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting, you and I have had discussions in the past about, um, you know, sometimes the most complex ca- transactions are actually this the smaller ones, you know, it, which is a, a bizarre thing. But it, I think quite often when business owners are trying to save money, they sometimes do it in the wrong way and end up costing themselves more than they actually save. So I guess that's, <laughs> that's the takeaway, that's the take-home message here. Mm, yep. Yeah. Let's take a short break. When we get back, we'll talk about more case examples in the area of misrepresentation allegations. And of course, we'll close out this episode with a snapshot of lessons that buyers, sellers and advisors ought to learn from these case themes. And that's next. I'm Joanna Oki and you're listening to The Deal Room Podcast, brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. If you're interested in hearing smart legal tips for business, the Deal Room Sister podcast, Talking Law, is perfect for you. These two podcasts are now among the top legal podcasts in Australia. In our Talking Law podcast, I dissect a different topic each week that I have seen impact businesses, and I then provide actionable tips for you to avoid that risk or to use that legal area to your advantage. We release new episodes every 10 days, and you can listen to our episodes through www.talkinglaw.com.au or subscribe to our Talking Law podcast on iTunes to be the first to know when a new episode is out. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Earlier, we talked about the real risks of misrepresentation allegations in the business sale and purchase environment, how these warnings apply to buyers and equally to sellers as well. We also identified the main areas where these issues tend to pop up. And then we went through a couple of case examples to illustrate the costs of neglecting the importance of doing proper due diligence and getting the right advice. Now, let's keep the conversation going and ask Liz for a few more case examples in this area. Then we'll close this episode out with a snapshot of lessons that we can draw from these case themes. So, I think we've got a couple of other examples here of other smaller businesses. Um, Is that right, Liz?
1: Yes, we do. So, for example, we've got a sale of a beauty salon where, you know, the agent who sold it said that there was a lease in place, but in actual fact they only had a license in place. So after the sale of the business, it turned out that, you know, the vendor did not have a right to occupy exclusively. And so, you know, with the beauty salon, I think a a lease Is fairly important to the business. I mean, you have to be there. (laughs) You know, you, you can't, it's not the type of business where you could just transplant yourself somewhere else.
0: Okay, so here we have a seller who thinks they've got a lease, they've actually got a license, they don't understand the difference between the two. They think they've got a sale, they've gone through the whole process of the sale going through, and then at the end of the day, the whole sale has been reversed basically because they hadn't provided what they said. They had, which was the lease. I mean, can you imagine? Once these cases end up in court, both sides have spent a bucket load in
1: costs. Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, and look, and then you know, I guess they both lose, right?
1: So, yeah, they both lose in this scenario, really. Um, you know, and that that's from misinformation of not getting the the technical information correct
0: yeah yeah once again we're coming back to the misplaced approach to savings in these instances in for not doing it properly not getting the right advice um you know and how this can at the end of the day backfire and end up in large costs for everyone So, look, maybe let's round it off by talking about our water cooler and filter business. I think this was another one that um, was was really interesting. Maybe let's talk about it.
1: Yeah. So, um, there was a a case reported where uh, a water cooler and filter business was sold. The seller had misrepresented the tone over of the business um, in that case. So as you can see, it's a common theme here that there, it's always uh, to do with financial information that's being given. So it's very important to make sure that you do the right due diligence. In that case, the court had found that the information that had been misrepresented was actually quite easily detectable from the bank statements that the business had. And obviously, you know, by not doing adequate due diligence, the buyer overlooked the, the incorrect information that, that was provided in that financial statements. Mm.
0: okay that's really interesting this issue of turnover of businesses I think is probably really getting to the crux of where the majority of these cases lie of course issues with leases and licenses and other areas that we've talked about come into play as well but certainly the financials and the turnover are one of these areas that come up again and again and again you know and, and of course it's something that we can see play out from a practical sense also being of concern sometimes so I think I think it's really important for advisors who are advising in the process, particularly advising sellers to be aware that there can be the suggestion of responsibility on their behalf as well. So whether or not that's a broker or an accountant that's assisting in passing over information, you have to be really careful if you're the conduit of financial information And the financial information is later found to be incorrect or at worst fraudulent. So, you know, there's really some questions that should be asked by advisors like accountants and brokers in this space to make sure they're protected as well. And maybe in the future we should specifically have a podcast that relates to that because I think that's probably an episode in and of itself. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) But I just thought, you know, maybe it's useful to throw out that warning there for any advisors who are listening in.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: All right, so let's maybe round this off with a bit of a snapshot then. Uh, What do you think, Liz, are the major lessons that can be learnt for businesses from this theme of cases that we've been talking about?
1: Well, from the seller's perspective, um, I think they need to be really careful about how they represent information to buyers. So to make sure that whatever it is that they're telling the buyers can be supported independently. From the buyer's perspective, I think it's really important to seek advice and not just rely on how you feel about the seller personally. Be critical of all the information that you're given and be absolutely critical about how it might impact on what you want to do with you know, the business moving forward after you've purchased. Mm, absolutely.
0: And I guess it's about not taking things at face value and certainly not basing your review of these areas on a perceived relationship or your perception of the truthfulness of the person that's providing the information. I think that's super important and also you need to be careful not to fall into this trap of believing that a smaller value save has less risk involved and therefore have less money dedicated to it. I think you need to think about the value of the risk, not the value of the transaction because I guess if you feel like you're not throwing a lot of money across the line and so it doesn't matter if the figures turn out in the wash to be correct, then that's fine. But if there's risk sitting in the business that might end up sitting with you as a buyer, or if you wouldn't be happy with simply throwing away the purchase price or the working capital that you've thrown in, then it's really important for you to take stock of this theme of where things have gone wrong in the past and ensure that you are using the right professionals who understand what they're doing in terms of going through the due diligence process to verify the accuracy of the information that you're receiving. Even though in many of these cases that we talked about, the sales were reversed and the cases were found for the buyer, there's time and money that's been wasted in getting to that outcome and certainly there's no place where the maxim of prevention is cheaper and better than the cure is truer than in this area, I think. And Liz, look, maybe it's useful for us to talk a bit more generally about our experience in the area of employee entitlement issues because as we said, it might be that a buyer feels that their only risk is in throwing away the purchase fund sometimes. And if that's the case, then they're not overly concerned by it. But sometimes... Some of the risks in a business can extend past the purchase price, certainly if there's a purchase of a company, so the shares in, in um, a company, there's the issue in relation to the history of the company, and also if you're just buying a business, so you're just buying the assets, there's certainly some areas where even in purchasing a business, you can be exposed to the historical performance of the organisation. So let's talk a little bit about this area.
1: Yeah, so this is not something that's widely documented and that is the issue of employee entitlements in relation to a business that's been sold. So there are some laws that govern what happens to employee entitlements that continue with the business even though a buyer might notify the the employees that they will no longer recognise their past service with the vendor. More particularly, you know, we're talking about long service leave entitlements. So even though a buyer has said to an employee that they're not recognising their period of service with their past employer, the fact of the matter is the long service leave um, legislation in, in New South Wales and in other states as well requires the purchaser to recognise continuity of service, which means that the buyer bears the risk post settlement. So it's irrespective of you know whether it's they're buying a company or the business that liability continues with the business. Mm. I think this is so important
0: for people to understand, you know, not just buyers of businesses and sellers, but advisors as well, you know, because I so often hear brokers and accountants talking about buying the business and not the company and ensure that the employees are given all the notices to ensure all their previous history of service has a line ruled under it. So their employment history is started over again from afresh, but of course it doesn't happen exactly that way. In fact, I was just talking to a broker just yesterday about this area and they were asking me about it because it's it's a common misconception, I, I think, out there. And I, I think that this is what many brokers and accountants don't fully understand because in the area of long service leave, there's this risk that if a seller hasn't been truthful in relation to the tenure of service, the long service leave period might carry over with a new employer, with them taking on all of the liability for that previously accrued long service period. And look, maybe here we should talk about what we can do, obviously, other than making sure the right processes are followed in relation to the sale. We need to maybe have a think about what we can do to protect buyers here. And I guess sometimes this is where the area of personal guarantees come in. Often we find that parties will push back on accepting a personal guarantee, though.
1: Yes, you certainly see that often from a selling entity because they don't, they they want to move on with their life after they sold their business. They don't want any ongoing liability relating to the sale of business. And from the buyer's perspective, it's absolutely necessary to make sure that you know their their ongoing liability is somehow protected, especially if they're buying from a company that could potentially be wound up. So, so I think. You know the personal guarantee is certainly one of the safeguards that can be implemented
0: because, of course, the sale proceeds go after the sale of the business unless we we you know have a deferred payment that's part of the um, part of the deal. But once again, this is why deferred payments can be a good option or, or earnouts or however you structure it because there's some sort of protection built into the future where issues like this can be identified and dealt with. But if you don't have that, if you don't have a deferred payment sitting there in the background, then really personal guarantees are a very sensible thing for a buyer to think about and to look to be included in the contract. But unfortunately, sometimes we see that sellers are advised by brokers and accountants that this is not appropriate in the situation. Yes, that's right. Well, look, I think we've covered here many of the issues that both buyers and sellers should be thinking about and hopefully also illuminated some areas for brokers and accountants. Now, in a future episode, I think we should really drill into some of these employment issues in far more detail because I think employment is another area that is particularly important for all parties to have their mind on and to be aware of because there's certainly some myths that are around and it's useful for us to be debunking these myths. But anyway, in today's episode, we've just been talking more about the element of misrepresentation and how it can potentially occur in the sale and purchase of. A Business and how it can hold risks for both buyers and sellers. If you'd like to see more about this topic, then just head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com. There, you'll also be able to set up a free appointment with Liz or any of our other members of our fabulous specialist team at Aspect Legal if you'd like to talk about your sale or purchase, or if you have clients who are involved in business sales or purchases. We've got services that are devoted both to smaller and larger sales and purchases, depending on size and complexity, and can certainly assist if you or your clients need assistance. And finally, if you enjoyed what you heard today, please pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. We'd be ever so grateful. Well, look, thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and Liz Lee on The Deal Room Podcast, brought to you by the commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Ladies Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this
1: evening's entertainment.